Off the X Podcast, episode number nine. I am Cody, and welcome. This is where we talk about overseas security operations and how the U.S. government protects their employees, oftentimes at high-threat locations. In particular, we discuss the Diplomatic Security Service and all of those who support the mission. In this podcast, we have Matt Miller. Matt is a doc, a medic with Triple Canopy. He uh, served uh, several years in Baghdad, also served with me in Erbil, and we get into some of that in the podcast. He's also a combat medic, a, a uh, medevac medic. He's flown over 450 combat missions and saved a bunch of people's lives. And uh, it's pretty cool to catch up with Matt and hear his story. And so we talk about a few things. We talk about... Uh, you know, how he started out in Baghdad. He talks about TST and being on ambassador's protection detail and uh, how he operated in Erbil. And then, of course, the attack on the U.S. consulate in Erbil, where uh, we all served at the time of the attack, April 15th, uh, April 17th, 2015. So, anyway, listen in, listen to Matt. I hope you enjoy, and I'll catch you on the backside. Thanks, y'all. Wow. We talked briefly about, you know, what the podcast is about and uh, diplomatic security, security contractors, Marines, those who support the mission. Um, and you have some experience doing that. So if you could, let's start with, why don't you just give us a little bit of background about yourself and how you got into the world of being a medic in, uh, you know, well, the security contract world. Yeah, definitely. So long story, but I was actually, I wanted to go into law enforcement. Uh, I was like, all Jess said, I was going to be a trooper and, and, uh, back in, this would be back in the eighties kind of dating myself, but, um, mid to late eighties, they actually had like this resident state trooper program. Uh, and I was like all about, it. I had to do it. And, uh, I was, I guess maybe 15, 16 years old. I was some buddies and, uh, just happened to witness uh, a child get hit by a car in a neighborhood and uh, you know what kind of watched everything happen everything all the equipment showing up and how the paramedics were doing their thing and uh, I was kind of I was a little bit awestruck and it looked like it would be very interesting and I kind of drifted in that direction and you know I, I'm a firm believer that everybody is great at one particular thing, you know, people are good at a lot of things, but there's that one thing that you're great at, you know? And, um, you, you, for me, it, it's being a paramedic, man. I love it. I, I live it, breathe it, eat it. Um, and, uh, I just got bit over it, you know? So, um, I spent some time in the Marine Corps. That's where I started my military uh, background. Absolutely hated it. I was, uh, uh, I had every intention. I wanted to be an EOD. Don't ask me why. I was just like this thing I wanted to do. And, uh, what they, and you, you were in the Marine Corps. So you know how all this goes, you know, your recruiter puts you in a field, you know, the engine, it turns out it's an engineering field. Um, but what they don't tell you is in that engineering field is, uh, the bulk fuel specialists at the very bottom 
<laughs> the engineering field. And uh, that's where I wound up going. Uh, I didn't know you were a Marine. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that. And, uh, you know, all I know about engineers is the combat engineers, whether they're, you know, rigging explosives or the guys that are building and knocking down buildings. I didn't know that a uh, broke fuel specialist was part of that. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, know. MOS. I didn't know that either. <laughs> so how many years did you do? Did you do four? Uh, yeah, I just did. And man, I couldn't get out of there fast enough, dude. You know, and I absolutely loved the Marine Corps as um, what it is, you know, the Marine Corps as a division of the military. And I loved being a Marine um, but absolutely hated, hated my job, you know? So it was just so disappointing and I was miserable for four years and I bitched and bitched, you know, I even tried to, uh, transfer, you know, and go back to a different school. And they were like, uh, no, your, your MOS is so desperately needed. And I'm like, I'm in a building with like 450 bulk fuelers and we all just do nothing, you know? Um, it sucked. It was like 31 flavors just suck. So, um, the good thing is, you know, I, I got to, I got to be in the Marine Corps. And I, like I said, I really loved being a Marine, you know, um, you know, later in life when I went to combat in the army, you know, I come, I came to realize that there's really not a lot of difference, um, between the Marine Corps and the army when it comes to the, the combat mission. You know, the discipline's there, the esprit de corps is there, everything's pretty much there, you know. Um, but anyway, so I got out of the Marine Corps, and I'm looking, figuring out what I want to do with my life, and I, and I all came back to that that child hit by a car, you know, and um, I took my GI Bill, uh, jetted off to college, and started down the paramedic career. Um, it's been a blast ever since, you know, i I uh, went to work as a firefighter paramedic in Anne Arundel County, Maryland. Um, really enjoyed that. Gave me a lot of experience. Um, but while that was happening, I also kind of missed the military a little bit. I didn't miss being a bulk fueler, obviously, but I missed the military. I missed that structure and that discipline and that that. You know what I'm talking about. You've been down the same road, you know. Um, and at the time, and this was before 9-11, this was in the mid-90s, I guess 94, somewhere in there. Um, and I I was already a paramedic, so I was talking to the uh, National Guard recruiter, and they had, uh, in Maryland, over at Gunpowder, they had 18 Delta slot. And uh, I was all about it. You know, I was in great shape, and... I was like, man, that'd be awesome. Let me do that. Uh, I was actually in MEPS getting ready to go back in. And another National Guard recruiter kind of swooped in. And uh, he was like, oh, uh, you're a paramedic? They're, he's like, you you interested in flying? And I'm like, well, I'm always interested in flying. Why, what you got? And he said, well, they're standing up a medevac unit. And the uh, commander at the time uh, his name will come to me as soon as uh, this is all over, I'm sure. But he was kind of picking and choosing who he wanted in his aviation slots. He, he was kind of trying to stack the deck to create this um, really skill set heavy 
medevac unit, which I thought was great. Um, and uh, instead of going the 18 Delta route down Special Forces, I wound up going the medevac route and uh, started flying. I spent 14 years in medevac. Um, started in Huey's initially, transitioned over to Blackhawks. Um, a couple of planes flew into some buildings, and next thing you know, we're at war. And um, I actually thought uh, I was going to miss it. You know, I mean, everybody, all these units are deploying, and and uh, and I was talking to one of my very good friends, Jimmy Phipps. He he was kind of the the yin to my yang when it came to EMS. Him and I always wrote classes together and taught, and um, we're just out there kind of doing the job. And and uh, he's just super smart dude. Um, like super smart people come up and say, man, that dude's super smart. So um, we're, we're sitting there shooting the breeze one day and I'm like, man, we're going to miss this war. I can see it coming already. It's ridiculous. And I'm just ranting, raving, being all pissed off about nothing. And then we got an alert order. And in 2005, we wound up going to, uh, to Crete and covered all of M&D North in, in Iraq. Um, so I, and I spent a year in medevac um, was I probably one of the greatest years now the greatest year of my life um, as far as risk and reward um, you know flying a medevac mission in that theater of operations at that time um, was incredible I I, I evac there were 450 combat casualties and I lost seven, you know? Um, so if, if you got hit and uh, Matt Miller landed on your LZ, you had a really good chance of getting home, you know? And, and um, I took a lot of pride in that. You know, it, if you were done, you were pretty much done because it, it, it was hard to get me to stop, you know? So, so went through, I actually had a, uh, a guy from Newsweek got vetted uh, and or embedded with us. Uh, he was with me for a month, and he photographed everything I did. You know, so I have this like this this like, I don't know four bajillion pictures of uh, different missions and different things, and uh, you, you know, and and I look back at them now, and you can when you look at these pictures, you know, to me, I can still smell it and hear it. Um, you know, that, that that's the downside to medevac. And uh, the bigger downside was I, I was kind of the, in Tikrit, I was the, the, the kind of the go-to guy, the senior flight medic. I was the SI, which is the standards instruction instructor guy. I was the flight instructor. So uh, all the non-rated crew guys on the medical side got trained by me. Um, and I was the only one that had any real um, – CISM, you know, critical incident stress management kind of experience. Uh, so along with flying and running missions, you know, uh, if we would have a particularly bad mission, you know, uh, it, I was the one that always kind of sat down and, and kind of talked folks through what they were going through and um, kind of got the chaplain and Bob or, or psych or whoever had to do, um, you know, but the, the problem was there was really no one there for me to talk to. Uh, so I, I kind of, I took a lot of, it was a great mission and I got to do a lot of really great things and I got to help a lot of people, but 
I kind of took a lot of ghosts home with me, you know, and I, I had a lot of problems recovering from that, uh, you know, but came home um, and uh, I wasn't even home 10 months. Uh, actually, I was home six months and the brigade combat team, the 58th BCT was getting ready to deploy back to Iraq. And they had reached out to me and asked if I would teach uh, medevac training, you know, get their folks up to speed on how to get their casualties loaded and unloaded and, and how to interface with Blackhawks and the crew and all that. And, you know, absolutely, you know, you never say no. And um, so I get there and I meet uh, Will Walters. <laughs> he was a brigade surgeon, Dr. Walters, um, super awesome guy. He, he was actually, you might know Will, he was um, the State Department um, operational physician for um, for all the State Department, I believe. I don't know if, if you ever crossed paths with him. No, I don't think so. Um, super cool guy. He started out as a paramedic, became a nurse, wound up going to doctor school, and um, kind of similar. You know, he's a lot smarter than me. And so he zeroed me, and he's like, hey, man, why don't you come with us? And I was like, dude, I could never volunteer to come with you. I'm like, Grace, my wife would kill me. And uh, little did I know that me being me saying, man, I can never volunteer for that was subliminal code to him to say, well, then let's not volunteer him. Let's just put him on orders. And um, nobody said anything to me. And uh, I'm home, uh, phone rings, pick it up. And um, uh, it was a Lieutenant Corcoran. He's a lawyer now. Super, another super nice guy. Um, He's like, uh, Sergeant Miller, good afternoon. Um, this is Lieutenant Corcoran. I'm like, hey, sir, who are you? He's like, I'm your platoon commander. And I'm, I'm oh, great, new pilot, awesome. You know, hey, t- you know, you just joined a unit, and, and, and we were talking for probably 10 or 15 minutes. I'm thinking he's new to medevac. He's thinking that I'm already aware that uh, I've been volunteered to the infantry, and uh, in the middle of the conversation, he, he's like, you, uh, he's like, you, you have not been made aware that you've been put on orders for the brigade combat team. No, I was not aware of that. Um, so uh, I wound up 10 months later uh, getting reactivated and sent back to Iraq with uh, um, Bravo Company. First to 175th as their company medic. Uh, I had eight medics, nine medics under me. Um, and uh, it was the uh, convoy security mission, which, you know, uh, uh, when I had a conversation with uh, Dr. Walters, I, you know, I basically, there was, there was two missions with that, um, with the 175th. There was a, uh, a force protection mission. And then there was a convoy security mission. And uh, I basically said, you know, uh, I'm not a fobbit. You know, uh, I don't spend my life at the PX. And if you're making me go on this deployment, you cannot make me do a force protection mission. Not that there's anything wrong with that for anyone listening who was a force protection guy. I think it's awesome. It's needed. It's needed. Uh, it just wasn't 
for me. Uh, so wound up actually going to Talifar, uh, just a couple hour drive up MSR Tampa from where I was at uh, Spiker on the medevac mission. Um, did another year. Um, wound up, uh, didn't, I didn't go out on mission too much because I was kind of in charge of all the other medics and they kind of went out and did the, the work, you know, um, got out on more than my fair share, got shot at more of my fair share than, um, had some IED strikes. I got, um, uh, I had a sniper, uh, September 7th, 2007, uh, is a date that is permanently burning in my head. But um, we were going from Talifar. Uh, we were going. That wasn't Talifar. Strike that. It was a uh, Kyara, uh, Q West. I'm sorry. Uh, Talifar was another mission. But um, we were heading down to Balad. So it was a multi-day mission. Uh, the mission got jacked up from the get-go. Uh, the convoy ahead of us got hit with an incendiary IED. They lost a, a, a crew. Uh, I think they had two KIAs and um, two of them were urgent served. They were, they were really messed up bad. So um, then we had our ASV got hit um, up in the front element. Uh, concussions. The, the armor on the ASV did what it was supposed to do. Uh, the bizarre thing was, is the, the spot where the ASV got hit was the exact same spot. Um, young kid named James Sherrill was my fifth KIA. Uh, he got hit the exact same intersection, um, MSR Tampa and ASR Hershey, you know, so anybody that's been in that area knows exactly where I'm talking about. Um, the bad guys used to hide IEDs in the waddies there. And, uh, but they got our ASV. So they knocked that one out. Um, we only had one that was really bad concussion that I had to leave behind. Um, he wound up coming back to the unit and recovered well. Uh, the rest of them just got their bells rung pretty good, but they went on with the mission. Um, so what was supposed to take three days took a seven. Um, when we went into the town of Samara, uh, we were crossing the bridge there on the Tigris River. So the recon element, we punched out ahead just to make sure everything was right up there before we pulled the main body through. And uh, my upgunner, I think it was Mayo. Because uh, I remember he had, I think it was Mayo. He had really bad gas that day. And, I, and if you've ever been in an up armor Humvee, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And uh, I almost stabbed him in the ass. It was getting old. But because the medic is the left rear dismount, and anybody who's been out there knows where the upgunner's standing, right? He's right in your face. But anyway, so he, uh, this little white pickup truck goes flying past us, and um, he just yells down to me. He's like, hey, doctor, it looks like there's a, a little girl in the back of that thing looks like she's injured pretty bad. So I talked to, uh, uh, Fred Rudder. He was the, he was the, uh, convoy commander and he was my TC. Um, and I said, Hey Fred, you mind if I jump out? Let me go check this out. He's like, yeah, man, go ahead. I'll come with you. So me and him went over there. 
I jump in the back of this truck. This kid is six, shot through the neck, through and through, um, like high velocity blood spatter up against the back of the truck. And um, it was a it was a fucking sniper shot her to bait me in. You know, now I didn't know that at the time. Um, so I'm trying to stem the bleeding on this like tiny, tiny child. And, uh, one of the Iraqi soldiers at the checkpoint there at the bridge, he jumps up in the back of the truck to give me a hand and, uh, pow goes off and he takes a round right in the ass. I mean, I was so close to it. I heard it hit the meat on him, you know? And, uh, he was, I, I guess the sniper was going to make his shot at me and, my man just stepped in the way of it, you know, and uh, never got a chance to thank him. But, um, you know, that that still bothers me today, you know, that, that someone could be so evil and heinous and, you know, just not give a shit about anything that would shoot a child for no other reason to be able to shoot an American, you know, um, that one fucked with me bad. Got a brown star for it, but um, whatever. I'd have done without it. And um, so, uh, rolled through that one. Um, came home, and there, there's something. I kind of ran into the same problem um, on the infantry mission as I did on the medevac mission. You know, is everybody always wants to come talk to the medic, you know, when, you know, something happened that bothered them or whatever. Um, and that, and, and that's what I'm there for, you know, and I'm happy to sit down and talk with people. And the other thing is I, I think they were comfortable sitting down and talking with me because they knew that that's where it was going to stay, you know? Um, cause you know, infantry guys, it, it's a lot for one of them to open up, you know, especially if it's something that could potentially take them out of the mission. Because infantry guys don't, they don't want to come out of the mission. You know, they, they live and breathe that shit. And uh, that's the the one thing I admired of those guys. It was just nonstop mission, 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 mission. That's all they wanted to do. And uh, I thought it was awesome. You know, but again, I didn't really have anybody to kind of lean into. Um, I was lucky. There was. Uh, it was actually a psych unit came in and I was able to talk to some folks there, but came home and, um, never really bounced back after that one. You know, I went, I went back to work in the fire department. Um, the, uh, the chief was awesome. He let me come off the ambulance for a little while and I wound up driving fire engines for a little bit, which was just a, a refreshing break. And, um, started to kind of self-medicate a little bit, you know, the drinking got a little heavier, you know, and the dreams got a little creepier and, um, and it kind of devolved from there, you know, and I had a lot of problems, uh, to the point where, you know, my wife was constantly, uh, she was like, you need to go talk to somebody, you know, but it's, it's really not how we're wired, you know? And, um, so she kind of talked to somebody for me, 
she went to my uh, first sergeant and um, next thing I know, the first sergeant chaplain showed up in my house and I'm back on active duty and they sent me to uh, Walter Reed to get my head screwed back on right. Um, and I always loved her for that because it probably would have been on a collision course to uh, nowhere on that one. Um, uh, so uh spent another year at Walter Reed in the uh, on the, the community-based kind of get your shit straight kind of unit. Um, got promoted to lieutenant in the fire department, went back there for a couple of years, and, and it was – it was just never right. You know, I just didn't, you know, it, I could not get rid of this itch, you know, when you, and you can talk to any combat guy and they will tell you there's just something about being deployed and doing the job and, and seeing the results. And, uh, you, you don't really want to come away from it. And the fire department was great. Being a paramedic's awesome. Um, a lot of excitement. It just didn't fix that itch. Um, I guess maybe two, three years later, a uh, guy named uh, Tracy called me. He was in a uh, 18 Delta worked for triple canopy. I have no idea where he got my Intel. Um, uh, he called me out of nowhere. And he's like, what are you doing? I said, uh, Peyton life. What are you doing? And he's like, well, why don't you come to work for me? Let's go to Baghdad. <laughs> and that's basically how it all went down. Um, I talked to him for about an hour. He went through my bio. Um, the bizarre thing was, uh, I was kind of leaning that way about doing the contractor thing and, and going out. And I was always kind of interested in, uh, security contracting, um, and the bizarre thing was if I had no intention of ever switching over to being an infantry medic, I was happy in aviation, loved it, breathed it. And Will Walters kind of forced me into it. And that year with the infantry was the qualifier to get my, uh, my Willy Wonka chocolate ticket down to, uh, uh, triple canopy school, you know? Um, went down there, had an absolute blast. If, uh, don't get me wrong. It's an extremely difficult class. Um, seven and a half weeks. You could test it every day. You know, they drop people left and right. Um, but if you have all your shit in one sock, uh, and you just keep moving forward, keep leaning forward in the saddle, you'll get through it. And, uh, the reward is it's, it's awesome. You know, um, then they sent me off to Baghdad. Spent a month there. Absolutely hated it. As, um, yeah, you were. So let's talk about that a little bit. You were uh, you were TST first, yeah. So what you mentioned to me. Mm-hmm. So tell us what TST is, and um, I know you hated it, but uh, <laughs> what it is without without compromising OPSEC or anything. Sure, um, sure. Just a kind of over overview of TST at uh, Embassy Baghdad. Yeah, basically. Um, it was kind of an emergency reaction force, uh, kind of the, the contractor infantry for the, the embassy. Um, you know, so our mission was to repel an attack if it uh, knocks on the front door. 
you know, I mean, you got your force protection folks and all that stuff, but at the end of the day, our mission, something happens, everybody jumps in a bear cat and away we go. Um, and I got, you know, even, even if it was something that I didn't really enjoy, I always got something out of it, you know, with the TST side, I've got a lot of really good training. You know, the downside of being the doc on the team is nobody thinks you can shoot. It's just the way it is, you know. Uh, so you get to go to the range a lot and you get to put a lot of rounds down range. And the only way to get better is put rounds down range. Um, so that side of it was great. I got a lot of um, – I got to work with – some guys that were very tactically proficient. Um, so I got to pick their brains a little bit. Um, you know, so that part of the mission, you know, I got, I got a lot out of that. Um, I didn't really like it. You know, it was long, boring days. Cause you know, the embassy just doesn't get attacked every day, you know? Um, and I remember, uh, a good bit of guys that, that went to TST, I feel, and tell me if I'm wrong here, there were some that were experienced that had ran high pro teams and maybe some low pro teams, and then some uh, of the contractors that came on were just brand new. And so they kind of, have a, I don't know if it was a mix is, is what it appeared to me, but I know some good dudes, some contractors on TST uh, as well. Now, TST stands for Tactical Support Team, yeah? Mm-hmm. I remember correctly. And it's different than uh, QRF. If a team gets hit in the red zone, uh, you guys weren't responding, right? Correct. It's been a, yeah. Correct. We were we were the base mission. We were the yep. the embassy mission. Not the, yeah. And when uh, we got to Erbil, right? And we got to Erbil. Well, first off, when I got to Erbil, we didn't have either, and we stood one up, and it was dual purpose. Mm-hmm. We did both. And I think you remember because you probably rotated off of all of everything because Orbeal was so small. But uh, I remember creating that and turning it into a dual mission. What well, we were short bodies, we we're short short medics for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, anyway, we'll get to Orbeal later. But all right, so after TST, you went to Spartan One One. Tell us what Spartan One One is. <sighs> Spartan One One. Um, you know, for the life of me. I know you know him, uh, the shift lead. I, I lost his name. I've lost the shift the, lead, I'd have to see his face. I, I mean, I knew some of the AICs. Best-looking um, guy on contract, just ask him, and he would tell you. Best-looking guy. <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> he was, man. The um, uh, He was a trip. The first time I ever met the dude, um, I got put I, – um, I got said, hey, you're going over to 1-1. Your shift lead is uh, like a, it'll hit me tomorrow. Um, just go check in with him. Here's his room number because we were in the uh, the um, supermax at that time. We had just they had just stood the supermax up, uh, so everybody was in there. And I went down, banging on his door. Dude opens the door. He's with the exception of the skimpiest speedo underwear. And you can wear, he was wearing nothing. And um, I can never unsee that. But he, uh, 
He was a really good shift lead, though. You know, you don't get to be the shift lead of Spartan One One, which is the ambassador's protection detail, um, by being a shift back. You know, um, so I spent a couple, couple weeks on that too. Um, APD at that time had, you know, it was APD, you know, so the ambassador's protection detail for everybody's like, what the hell is he talking about APD? But, um, it was kind of neat, you know, you wear suits and, um, all that stuff. But, uh, at that time, you know, a little bit of the coolness had gone out. We, the, the missions were, were really safe. You know, they, uh, a lot of the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you were out there about that time, you know, the, the, yeah, I left around a little bit. Yeah, for sure. I, uh, I left April, 2012, I believe. And, um, there's so many changes that happened within a year, everything from, you wear, you got to wear a sport coat. You got to wear a suit. You don't have to wear a sport coat. There's visa issues. There's, you know, how many people were sending out with APD. I, I, I never did it. I, I ran an advance for you guys once. We did an IPD advance because I guess he was going to multiple locations, and um, and you know they they said well, you guys got to wear sport coats, and I was like I'm not wearing a fucking sport coat. And I forget who the AIC was, and he asked me to wear a sport coat. I said, I'm not having my team wear a sport coat. I said, I'll advance it. I'll throw on a sport coat, but I'm not going to have the team wear one. And so we, we found a happy happy medium. But what I didn't like about APD or what didn't entice me about APD because I wasn't on it was their green zone missions. You know, most of you can – just about everyone can go out in the green zone uh, right. without having a protection detail. And, you know, I didn't care to do that. I wanted to go to the red zone. That's where the action is, uh, quote, unquote, unquote, action. But otherwise, uh, you know, you are protecting the big dog on campus, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And when we were there, you were wearing suits. And uh, it was was red. Like, when you get there, um, the guns were scary. So... You had to have your shirt untucked when you were walking around the, the embassy. Uh, if you were carrying your rifle from Supermax over to um, our, our little logistics area where we'd set up for um, a motorcade, you had to carry your rifle in a bag. You know, so yeah, it got a little old. And it's like 358 degrees, you know, and you're walking with a suit and tie and all that. It's not a small compound. And Supermax... No. Supermax for people listening, it's on the east east side of the compound, and that is the complete opposite direction of where the cons uh, where the, uh, exactly. the chancery is, and where you guys would start your missions, or where your yeah, AIC was. Exactly, yeah. It was crazy. You, you could you run one lap around there, and you're uh, you're you're uh, you run a mile and a half. <laughs> It was a lot, you know, uh, but the upside to being an APD is you get exposed to a lot of additional training and I am like a training. I can't get enough of it. I love training. Absolutely. Love, 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 love training, you know, and that all came to fruition. Um, when the, uh, consulate got hit, 
in uh, 2015 or whatever, um, that training kicked right in and, um, man, it was like, it was like watching water flow. It was awesome. You know, there was a lot of hiccups, but from where I, I think stood, we did all right. Yeah. I think we did all right. Watching it, it was, it was smooth, man. But, you know, so we got exposed to a lot of additional training there. We had that little training ground. I think it was on the South end of the complex over towards the aviation piece. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it was an embassy air out there. And, um, you know, uh, I hate myself for not remembering his name because he was really sharp. Um, but he had, he was big on training and he had a lot of, uh, just gun drills, you know, on, you know, where's your muzzle and movements and, and, and things like that to just kind of build in muscle memory and that stuff that you don't think about until you're under a metric shit ton of stress, you know? Uh, and he was really good about building that muscle memory into every part of the mission, which I thought was awesome. Um, uh, I was basically covering down for um, their medic that was off. And um, once he rolled back, then I rolled out to another unit, you know, and for, you know, when you're brand new doing it, and you kind of come there with some preconceived kind of, this is what I think it's going to be like. And then, cause you're the new guy and you need to prove yourself in that before these shift leads will start, you know, fighting to keep you. And, um, so I got moved around like a utility player for that whole first rotation. And, uh, dude, it, it was, uh, to the point where I was like, man, if this is it, this is going to be it for me, man. I'm, I'm going to go home and I ain't coming back to this. And as fate would have it, uh, Tony Beltran needed some medics up in Erbil. And, uh, they, they were like, you, you want to go up to Erbil? And I was like, is it here? And they're like, Nope. I said, yep, I'll go. You know? <laughs> so you went up to Erbil. I remember when Tony, so Tony and I met 2010, he was on the podcast already. We talked about that. Um, and, um, I remember when they were forming a team to go up to reveal to take over the dying court contract or mm-hmm. to slowly, slowly begin to take over of the dying court contract. And that was right when I was leaving, which is 2012. Did you go up during that time um, or did you go, uh, it was your second rotation. Uh, it was right at the end of my first rotation. Okay. Uh, I think I had. Maybe, yeah, it was probably like not even 15 days left before I was rotating home. And I got sent up there. I got sent up there at the point they already had, uh, the CG already had his team. We were running that. And they had the ITI mission. Um, they were teaching to Zervani um, and doing that piece. I mean, it was small. It was really, really small footprint. Uh, I was the third medic to show up there. They only had two of them up there at the time, so they were really short-handed. And um, uh, I met Tony. I flew up, shook his hand, and um, you know, I was like, "I'm a team guy, man. Wherever you need me, just put me there, and I'll I'll take care of it." 
whatever you need me to do, I'll do it. You know, and um, and that's pretty much what I did. I wound up in the talk because <laughs> he he needed. I think Tony was very good at forecasting and seeing where things were going to be short and kind of anticipating that shortfall and plussing things up to get ready for something that was people didn't think were going to happen yet. Um, that's the one. It's one thing you say about Tony is he's. He's a really good logistician, if I said that correctly, and a personnel mover guy. You know, he's he's just got a really uh, sharp sense about him with that. You know, so he kind of knew these things were going to be developing, and he needed more medics. I came up there, and I wound up in the talk. You know, I had never worked in a talk a day in my life. And uh, I figured it out, though. Didn't take me too long. Talk on the radio can't be that hard, you know. Yeah, that was a talk uh, that, well, I knew when I arrived in 2014, which is what the size of a walk-in closet in that uh, in that one villa. We call them villas. I think it's a strong word for what they are. Villa sounds like it's some exotic, uh, you know, it's some building in a yeah. glass all around. And, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Overlooking the ocean. And, uh, well, it's just the opposite of that. Um, and it, it certainly wasn't, it wasn't certified as a talk, you know, and I, I talk in some of my videos, my YouTube videos about, you know, DS stuff and like there's waivers for everything. And mm-hmm. it was certainly a waiver for that talk because it was, uh, well, it was super small and, uh, limited in, uh, what we could do there, you know? Yeah. Oh my God, man. It was, it was like three desks and. We we were all probably three or four feet away from each other. I mean, it was, I mean, it was like a ten by ten room. I mean, the thing was tiny. Yeah. Hey, do me a favor. To, uh, tell a little bit about uh, the compound interbill and how. Well, it was way different than Baghdad, but just give a little background on Erbil, the setup there, the city, anything uh, you can expand on. Sure. Um, <clears throat> You know, Erbil was kind of Erbil is almost a city I would be interested in going back to just to check out, like not at work kind of thing. You know, um, I mean, it's no Solmania, it's no glittering spotlights and all that, but it's a it's got a large Christian community, which is literally where the, the consulate was right on. Um. So you had a lot of friendly people around you, which was great, you know, and this was before all the ISIS stuff kind of kicked up. I got exposed to just the very beginnings of that when I was down in Baghdad with, uh, um, we went up to Balad, just north of Balad, had a bunch of guys got just slaughtered up there and we took FBI guy up there. But, um, the, the consulate was, it was basically if you would take, um, three, three by three city blocks, just, you know, and I'm not talking about like Baltimore city or New York city blocks, but you know, like town blocks, it's, it's very small. Um, and it just has these, the, these little villas, um, which are basically concrete houses with just concrete walls and concrete floors and concrete roofs and a lot of concrete. And, um, 
when we initially got there, the rooms were cut in half and two guys were sharing because when the Dynacore guys had it, there was this huge footprint there and they were packing these guys in like sardines. Um, and we alleviated a lot of that, but it was a, a very close community. Um, the one thing I liked a lot about it is, uh, like when you're at Baghdad, you, you can see the, the, the huge separation between the contractor world and the state department world. Um, you know, some of the guys would go hang out, but it, it was very much kind of an us and them kind of environment there. Um, the thing I liked a lot about our deal is it wasn't like that. You know, there was a lot of intermingling. Everybody knew everybody. It was this kind of small town feel. Everybody knew what they had to get done. The mission got completed. And when it was over, everybody relaxed. Um, you know, you, you had, um, uh, service officers doing what they do, you know, but when you would see them walking around, it, it wasn't, there was, you know, it, it was easily, you know, I could be like, I was like, Hey Andy, how you doing? And he's like, Hey doc, how are you? You know, everybody was kind of on a first name basis. And I really liked that. Um, and so essentially what they did is they took these three by three blocks and they just put giant T walls up and just block the whole thing off. You know, I think people get like this mental image of the consulate, like this, uh, you know, corporate kind of looking establishment with, you know, ivory buildings and American flags everywhere and uh, shit like that. But it, it wasn't like that. You know, the consulate itself um, was basically just a villa you know, with a American flag pole in front of it. And, um, had a couple of ins and outs. And at that time, like I said, ISIS hadn't kicked off their shenanigans yet. So as long as there was two of you and you had at least one radio and there and both of you had a pistol, you were allowed to just go out to Petcac and walk around the town, you know, go out and get some food. Cause we didn't have a, a chow hall like they had in Baghdad, you know, you're living on the economy. You're, you're buying your own food and, and, and making your own meals. Um, so it was nice to, you know, missions done, walk out in town, get a whatever you want and um, stretch your legs a little bit. You know, at that time you could walk off. There was a big Catholic church over there, um, probably three, four streets over. You know, you could you could walk over to the church. You know, and, and I mean, you could walk that far. It wasn't like uh, you, you had this, you know, electric leash or anything. Uh, it, it was fun. It was very comfortable. Um, and it, it was just an enjoyable atmosphere there. Um, if that kind of sums it up a little bit. Yeah, no, that's a great description. I, I put that in the book as well. Very similar to the way you described it, you know, take some T walls, surround them around. I think I said exactly three blocks and, um, drop a couple, you know, uh, cacks there and, uh, boom, you have a consulate and you're right. The chancery was just a regular villa. Uh, the best thing you described was the villas because it's true. Concrete on top of concrete. They were not comfortable. They were not comfortable living it. Uh, didn't feel homely at all. Um, and you know what, uh, Erbil was kind of known as, at least for DS agents when we were bidding, 
kind of the oasis in in uh, Iraq because you get to go there, you still get some danger pay, you get some differential pay, but you get to walk around, you get to do exactly all the things you talked about. And that's why I bid on it. I pinged Tony. I knew Tony was up there, and I said, hey, man, you still are you still up in her bill? And he said, yes, yeah. I'm looking to come down there. He said, do it, come. So I did, and I got it. And um, I got there in 2014, And but right when I got there is when things started to shut down. It was within uh, within two weeks because I got there and me and another ARSO went out and you know met with some of our uh, local surveillance guys that worked for us in you know one of these restaurants and you know got to go get some coffee and do a couple things and then that was it two weeks ISIS made their push they took Mosul they came up to Kalak Oski Kalak remember the how yeah. close they got uh, and. Um, that was it. Everything was shut down at that point on, and it never opened up again. Not for my time, at least. No, no. It, it uh, and it, it got creepy fast too. You know, it, it, it's man. It's like the Iraqi army gave no pushback whatsoever, and they just rolled through that the area and just took what they wanted. And in a matter of what forty eight hours, they became one of the richest terrorist organizations in the world because they broke into all the banks in Mosul, <laughs> took all their dough. Um. Yeah, they took you to Kirk. They took you know, overtook. Uh, what was it called oil wells out in Kirkuk? Mm-hmm. Um, they did a lot, and they did it fast. And you know, we're. I don't know if you were there when I arrived. I know you were assigned yep. there. You might have been on your rotation. Were you okay? We had a drill, and um, the drill had. Well, you guys were just going through the motions, and it wasn't your fault. You had fought a fight before to try and say this is we should do things a little differently and no one was listening Mm -hmm. and so i came out and we did this drill and i was like hold up there's an american here there's a local guard behind that american then there's another local guard then here i it made no sense like you're going to be shooting into each other's back and so i questioned some of that i also questioned running out when we hear the duck and cover because you remember in baghdad if the duck and cover went off that's idf coming in um, and I, I made an argument. I said, hey, it's a, a pause for five seconds to ensure, you know, what's going on is what we need to do. And uh, so I pulled Tony aside. I pulled a couple of – I pulled Pack aside. And, uh, you know, they said, yeah, Cody, we agree. We've been fighting this battle. So I went in to fight the battle. And I didn't win right there, but I won later whenever an IDF hit at the airport and – we changed the rules. <laughs> we changed the procedures to the SOPs and what to do. Yeah. Um, and I do remember as well, I had my first meeting, um, uh, the deputy RSO took me in. I, I, I took over protective ops and pack Derek Canales was there. Um, and they were talking about medics and we didn't have enough medics. We didn't have enough medics. We wanted a medic on every mission that the CG went out on. And they were trying to do it without a medic. And um, I asked, I said, why don't we have medics? We need medics. And they kind of laughed. And so it was a, I was on a mission at that point to go get medics. And Tony and I were. And so we did. Within, within uh, well, after ISIS made their push, we had, a lot of, we had a lot of weight. Like, we need freaking bodies here. So I think the contract increased from 38 to 53, uh, much of them who were medics. Yeah, we went from because there was only three of us uh, initially, and um, 
man, it, it like doubled quick. Yeah. Just because it got so crazy, you know? I mean, it, do you it remember became, the, do you remember the two days? Uh, I want to hear your description of kind of what you were doing the, the, the days that they made their push up to eight miles. You may remember it started like in the middle of the night. And then uh, for two days we were destroying things and prepping. For <laughs> what, were our, what were you up to? Uh, burning shit. That's pretty much. Um, yeah. They, they made that push and um, it all came out pretty quick. And it was, it wasn't a middle of the night. I think everybody kind of bumped up out of the bed. Cause I remember all the grills got converted into uh destroy information barrels. And uh, we just started going through everything. Any, uh, a lot of the, the old training records and how we used to do business, uh, anything that was in a binder that kind of gave a clue as to how we were doing, what we were doing, it got burned, you know, and um, I'm sure a lot of valuable information was lost, but it should have been digitized, you know, um, but it, it was reams and reams and reams of paper that just got burned. And uh, Yeah, that's part of the process. Yeah, so we were uh, oh, destroying documents. I just picked up. So we were just, it was like, we were almost burning shit in, in shifts. Because uh, we were anticipating that, like, the, the enemy was at the gates, you know, and they were going to be showing up any time. And, and I believe, if uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe the intel at the time was was uh, was calling that. Uh, yeah, they, they were. It was. I put in my book 15, 15 miles away. They were more like eight miles away. Uh, they made they made significant progress. The night that I got the phone call, they were uh, like twenty or so miles away, and they made a, a ton of progress overnight. Um, so it was the next day that we were destroying everything and everything from hard drives. And it wasn't just classified for the listeners, like classified, you, you have to destroy. That's part of the process. We were doing a lot of, um, SBU, which is sensitive, but unclassified, but more importantly, we were seeking out personnel files of our local Iraqi staff and, trying our best to find anything and everything about who worked there and destroy those. Because if they live in the city, ISIS comes to the city, finds their name that they're working out for the consulate, obviously they're going to get killed. They could drag them out in the street with their family. Yeah. So, you know, and a lot of them weren't there anymore. We allowed, we basically allowed free reign, like, hey, go get out by far every local that we knew besides Zervani who were there to kind of help us. Um, they were gone. Our local staff had took off. They fled the city. It was a sea of taillights. If you get it, went up to one of those, uh, yeah. like the, the rooftops. I remember that, you know, I don't think we had a strong Marine. I don't think, did we even have a Marine presence then yet? We had a Marine presence. They weren't official yet. Uh, so like they were just, there was a handful of them there. SOPs weren't in place. Um, they, it was, they were kind of setting up the detachment, you know, and the Marines, you know, the, we had heavier weapons. Uh, the the contract side in, in that armory had heavier weapons than the Marines generally carry. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we had we had the two forty Bravos. We had we had a few. Uh, 
Yeah, we had two four nines. Uh, I think you guys had some two oh threes, but they weren't. We had some two oh threes. We had like only two operational of the six, but yeah, we had those. We had thermite. We had all kinds of shit in there that we never took out, but we did on those days. Sniper rifles, of course. Let the mm-hmm. DDMs take those home. We made a lot of decisions in a short amount of time, and um, and I think we did pretty well. Like everybody snapped. It was a great team environment. Uh, everybody knew their job. Nobody was pushing back. We were all just freaking handling business. And, you know, fortunately it never came to fruition, but, uh, should it have happened, I think we would have gave them a good fight. Although we were way outnumbered with, you know, 38, 30, I think with the, with the DS agents and Marines, we're looking at, uh, you know, right around 40, mid 40, 50 shooters, um, and they had hundreds of ISIS fighters down the road. Yeah. But we had Shine. Don't forget. Oh, we had Shine. That's right. <laughs> we had to put, hey. put a bunch of them in the ground. <laughs> Country that, boy. Time, uh, you know, Tony talked about Shine in his podcast. And just a likeable, likeable dude, man. Mm. Really, really good. I wonder what he's up to these days. Actually, you know what? Tony said he's down. He's I think he's in Baghdad. Or maybe Rabil. But I think he's a shift leader. Um. He's not doing the facilities stuff anymore. That's what uh, yeah. Tony said. Well, he always had his shit together, man. He, he was locked on, dude. Yeah, yeah I funny. remember the uh, the red ant taillights going out of town, man. That yeah. was, uh, and it, I remember it, it. It was like creepy quiet everywhere. And, uh, yeah, I, I described it in the book. You know, we had the. It was about forty eight hours that all that went down. And then I, one morning I woke up and it was eerily quiet and I could hear in the distance, the boom, boom in the distance. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I went check the news and, uh, it was, they were reporting live and we're saying that, you know, Obama finally authorized airstrikes to take them out. Um, good. Cause they were close. And, yeah. uh, I don't know if you were privy to this information, but uh, there was someone that leaked info to our regular staff. It wasn't classified information, but we wanted to withhold what we could not to cause a panic. And someone told this lady, and she blasted it to the whole consulate over email. And it was kind of the type of email that's like, they're coming over the walls. They weren't. You know, they might be. Yet, yeah, and so we had a whole uh, like public affairs campaign, internal campaign we had to handle to calm people down. Um, You know, you guys are focused on your mission. I was focused with you, but I but I had a like a secondary component because people were asking questions of, but what's going on? What do we do? And of course, we tell them what we do. We don't want to tell them everything that's going on. They just just sometimes. You know, it's a need to know. That's a real thing in the government, need to know. And at that point, they didn't. Um, of course, they learned. And then we drew down, you know, to uh, essential staff. But slowly, over the next couple of weeks or months, at that point. And then we slowly built back up, uh, you know, the rest of the time we're there. But you were on, let's talk a little bit, bit uh, about, you were on the Consul General's team primarily, Yeah. Uh, correct. And uh, what kind of operations did you do with those guys? Tell us about the 
time you flew out uh, with the Deputy National Security Advisor of Mosul and, of course, the Consul General and all those other guys. Yeah, that, was, that? Um, that was for the uh, – all the – they were Yazidi, I believe, refugees up on the mountaintop. Yeah, and on Mount Sinjar. Up there in um, – the ISIS pretty much had them pinned up on a mountaintop and they were pretty much starving. There there was, they were trying to set up, I believe they were trying to set up some kind of relief mission and, and we were going to help the Iraqis get some supplies to them or whatever. <clears throat> and there was another big military. This was when they were, uh, they were getting ready to push back to Mosul. Uh, Cause a lot of, I don't know, what people remember and don't remember, but the Iraqi army, like the, this, there's, there's different armies in Iraq. There's the Kurdish military, there's the Iraq army, and they're all different. You know, don't lump them into the same bush because you probably get punched in the face, especially when the Kurds are involved because they, the Kurds are pretty proud people. And uh, that's one thing I have a lot of respect for those guys. I mean, they, some of them weren't the brightest bulbs on a Christmas tree, but you know, they gave it their all and they tried. Um, and I had a lot of respect for him for that, but, um, the CG had gotten where the deputy national security advisor was coming. It was, um, a couple of generals, I believe it was a couple of congressmen and we were going, it was a Sikorsky nine, two flight. Uh, it was two Sikorsky nine twos. Um, you had the main pod with, the principals, and then you had strap hangers, um, who were their like secretaries for people who don't know who what strap hangers are, but you're hang around folks that take notes and just want to be there so they can say they were there. But they were in the other one, and um, you know, rewinding a little bit to like when I was in Baghdad, and I was at this point where I was like, man, this is not what I thought it was going to be. This is this sucks. I don't want to be here. This is boring. And then fast forward to the Erbil mission, and it was exciting. It was everything that I thought security contracting and dip security was going to be. You know, uh, there's not, we loaded all those folks up. Um, there was a military, they were military folks in civilian attire, the aviation personnel. <clears throat> And these guys were loaded to the teeth. I mean, they, all of them had cans on their rifles. Um, they had uh, a couple of belt-fed weapons hanging in the windows. It was it was nice, you know. I mean, I definitely felt well protected in those Sikorskis flying uh, over to towards Mosul. And essentially, we went to, I believe it was a Kurdish military camp, um, and. The deputy national security advisor and the uh, ambassador and the CG had to have a powwow with their commanding general guy on how they were going, what their intent was to take Mosul back, and how can the United States help them do that, and what did they need to facilitate this mission kind of thing. Um, so they went, did their meeting, went to another little base, I think the uh, – National Security Advisor wanted to kind of check out because it was a training base that we were going to. He wanted to kind of see what they were doing. I'm assuming if he wanted to go see it, it's probably because we were bankrolling it, uh, I would imagine. And he wanted to see where those dollars were going. Um, 
went over there, hung out for the day, had some dinner, shook some hands, met some new friends, and then um, took the flight back and uh, got everybody home safe. Uh, got the mission accomplished, but you know it, it was a blast. <clears throat> it was a lot of fun. You know, it's it's enjoy. You know, you're the you're kind of the gray man in the whole thing. Uh, you, you, these things happen in time and they take place and nobody ever knows that you were any part of that. You know, um, the mission doesn't come off unless you have a team medic there. The mission doesn't come off unless you have a shift lead. You know, the mission doesn't come off unless you have the security staff there, you know, but those people will never get known that we were anywhere near, um, which is fine. I didn't go there to get uh, like, cool shit, but, uh, or like a statue on my name or anything. But that was kind of the piece of it that I really enjoyed kind of being uh, the gray man in the wings, getting shit done and, uh, making it happen. There was a lot of that that happened in her bill. A lot of behind the scenes things that people don't Mm -hmm. understand. Mount Sinjar, the Mount Sinjar operation of people, I assume if you look it up online, you'll see something about it, but that was a big deal. Um, of course, the Yazidis, which is a religious sect uh, of Iraqis, um, were fled up to Mount Sinjar and were stranded. I, I think they were kind of surrounded or the other side was just – you just couldn't get down, maybe terrain issues or whatever. And um, we had several uh, military operations that went down there. Uh, USAID, which is United States Agency for International Development – uh, had a group. They actually have a couple like disaster response special operations guys that uh, flew out there to kind of get eyes on. Um, uh, uh, again, back to they had some military missions. They had Marine Force Recon was around. They were flying doing a QRF out of there. Um, I was fortunate to be a part of it. I didn't. I didn't uh, go on Mount Sinjar, but I was heavily involved in the logistics of getting. You know, the Marines in um, at the airport, finding them a location to set up at the old airport, um, you know, working with the task force and the SF guys to uh, to kind of coordinate logistics and everything else. And it's just something you don't hear about. And you guys were involved, too. Tony was with me. You know, I, I knew wh- who to go to, Shine, you mm-hmm. know, if I need a couple of refrigerators, you know, and, and Tony being a Marine and Shine being a Marine. And, you know, you had this this. uh a uh, couple of infantry, a couple of line platoons, and then some recon guys come out, but they were in the airport with, with nothing. So we had extra fridges and, and we all chipped in cash and bought like, you know, what Marines need tobacco and ribbits. Yep. <laughs> brought it, it over, brought some food. And uh, so anyway, it was, it's just cool, man. The, the whole mission there was just kind of everybody looking out for each other. And yeah, we had our specific objectives we had to, you know, partake in, which were, protective ops, high threat protection, but at least I got my hands in my position in a lot of different things. And I took you guys along with me for, for many of those in particular, Tony, just because of his role. And, you know, he would oftentimes task, task some things out to different people. Um, but I loved it. I, I, Erbil was the most rewarding assignment I had in, in my decade of time in DS. And it was just because, you got into so much and I think we did a lot of good work there. Um, oh, I thought it was know. great, man. It, it was great being the permanent party. The, the folks that were there, 
supporting other people that were coming in for their little piece of the pie. You know, they're a piece of the mission and we were making sure they got there safely. They didn't get hurt. Everybody came back mission complete and they left. And then the next bunch came in. Um, she's, I had, uh, <clears throat> I was there, uh, when secretary Kerry came in, um, that was an 11 car package. That was huge. It was a huge, uh, motorcade going through the town of Rebeal and they'd never seen anything like that. And, um, you know, the, the logistics alone to, and for people that have never done DS and run motorcades through high threat, you know, you get, you can do free car packages all day long in your sleep because that's what you do. That's your bread and butter. You know, when you start talking about seven, eight, 11 car packages and it becomes, it becomes technical and it becomes very difficult, especially trying to maneuver through a small city, you know? Yeah. Then with the additional threat and the high threat environment, Mm -hmm. Prior, maybe a couple years prior, that wouldn't have been the case. But since ISIS was around, and you know, and you're in a city where there's no rules when you drive, right? So there's there's no lanes. You just, you know, four cars can fit in one direction, then they fit, yeah. and they there's, they work the painted on the ground. But it's just a suggestion. It's yeah, not. yeah, exactly. I learned, it's, and then yeah, a speed bump pops up in the middle of the highway. You know, a 55 mile an hour, and they'll put a speed bump right in the middle of the highway. Yeah, it's kind of a controlled chaos because it, it, in some cases it worked, um, at least the the regular traffic flow on occasion. But um, yeah, running a motorcade because in DS, you know, domestically we run pretty long motorcades. Y'all, you have a lot of strap hangers, like we talked about earlier. Yeah, domestically you have a lot of vans, staff vans, and especially on the secretary's detail, you get pretty big details. But again, that added uh, kind of complications of being in a high threat environment and in a city where there's no rules and we're a police force that has all the good intentions, but they're not the most capable. They're very supportive, but not the most capable in like, uh, you know, yeah. And, and kind of helping out traffic flow and everything else. Um, but anyway, you were, uh, so you were there when we got attacked with the V bid. I was, (laughs) Now, here's the here's the story. So I was uh, ERT. At the, that, that was kind of a strange 24 hours. So I was I was on ERT. Um, uh, I was the overnight crew, which was um, team three. And um, the CG medic. I don't remember what he was tasked on, but I wound up covering for him that day on the CG's team. And the, he, uh, it wasn't the, it wasn't the regular CG. Um, it was the, um, DPM deputy, yeah. uh, principal DPO deputy principal officer. Right. So he had two missions that day. We had two missions that day. One was, um, he was linking up with some Kurdish, diplomat guy, you know, it was suits and ties and shiny shoes and, and our standard mission that we go on. And then the other half was, um, an Etsy mission. Um, and for folks that don't know what the Etsy is, that's the, your Beale diplomatic support center. So we had just gotten back. Um, and the, 
it's completely different from one mission profile to the next. When you're doing an Etsy run, it's just contractor casual. You know, you don't have to be in a suit and all that. So we all came back, hung our suits up, got out our cargo pants and our fucking flannel button-down shirts and uh, prepping to go on that. So I had made some food, was sitting down, and I'm Skyping with my wife. Right, so I, I made it a point to it. Pretty much every day, I, w- I would make it a point to get a hold of my wife, just let her know that I love her and I'm I'm alive, everything's fine. Especially with the ISIS ramp up, there was a lot of it was a lot of worry and a lot of concern. Because um, I mean, you said it, we're we were a very small force that they could have overwhelmed us so easy. I think if their commanders would have had any idea how small it was and how easy it would have been, <laughs> they probably would have pushed, but I think we lucked out. Um, so I'm on Skype talking to my wife. Hey baby, how you doing? I love you. Yeah, I miss you too. Hey, this is what we're going to do when I come home. And then boom, that V bid went off on the East wall there. And um, I went right into mission profile. Let me get my shit done. And, um, my wife's like, what the hell was that? And I said, honey, I got to go. I got to go. I got to go. And in my haste to get up and get out the door, I never hung up the phone. So uh, my poor wife, she's listening. She can't see me. You know, she, she can only hear what's going on. And you remember after that Viva went off, the, uh, the Peshmerga, I don't know what they were shooting at, but man, they were sending all kind of rounds up that street. You know, it's, yeah. uh, it, it was, I thought there was like an assaulting force with all the gunfire. Yeah. Well, and we, we, we had impact on some of our higher, taller buildings. They weren't shooting at us. They were shooting over the top of cars at a 45 degree angle. And some of it impacted our some of our buildings. And so yeah. you, over the radio when you could finally hear over the radio and like we got, you know, rounds of this building. And, uh, you know, I ran up to one cause I thought they were popping off in the middle of a firefight. And that's because the, the they were the, the closest ones. Not, I forget what CAC that was. It wasn't the ped CAC, but it was basically parallel to the ped CAC across the grocery store. And, um, CAC three, CAC three. Yeah. So that was popping off, but yeah, it sounded like, you know, within the chaos and everything going on, the black smoke, the you know, the fucking car alarms, uh, the people running and screaming, honking horns, phones ringing, you name it. And then <laughs> I'm on the phone. You know, it went from "I love you, babe, I miss you" to "I'm going to go kill something." You know, because I'm thinking we're about to get some because all this gunfire is going off. So my wife's listening to me. Get up. She hears my door open. She can hear the duck and cover alarm going off. And she doesn't hear anything else. She can only hear what's going on around. And she, you know, she's not going to hang up the phone. Um, and she kept that line open. She said for like an hour and a half, just trying to get some idea of what was going on. But um, I popped out. And uh, as soon as I came out the front door, there's a basketball sized chunk of that car um, sitting right on the sidewalk and, uh, I was covering down the CG team. So my first priority is the boss. And, um, I pushed straight up to the CG's office, 
uh, got a hold of him, and we just sat tight till his uh, his uh, AIC showed up, and then um, the AIC and I moved him down to uh, the to the Marine Corps, uh, the fortified building there, and then my mission with him was over. So I went and found some more work and I pushed back through and started clearing buildings on the, uh, on our side of the East wall. Uh, Cause all the glass was blown out, you know, and uh, I'm, I'm thinking we're going to go into some buildings and we're going to find some people cut up pretty bad. Uh, Cause there was a lot of glass that, that I think that was the, the biggest, really the biggest problem um, and I think we're really lucky that it went off the day it went off because those buildings to right on the East wall were all vacant at that time. Cause that was a uh, transitional housing, I believe. Yep. And, um, so we had, uh, pushed- we had two TD wires that got hit. They were, they were in there, but I think they, they weren't the ones they weren't in the villas that were directly across from where the VBIT went off. They were kind of down the way. So their biggest issue was hearing they they were like their ears were ringing. Yeah. Um, and I think they got a, maybe a little bit of bruises or scratches or something, but otherwise, yeah, those were, um, those were vacant. Cause uh, by that time, as soon as I punched through on that, that last road by the East wall, there was none of our guys had deployed that far out yet. This was still, I mean, it's, you're talking total at, it seems like it took forever. It was probably only three, three and a half minutes to get to the boss, um, button him up and get him where he had to be, you know, and maybe another 35, 40 seconds to get over to the, uh, where the East wall was. And my drive was just, if we had anybody down, I wanted to get them to the uh, casualty collection point or someplace secure that I could put them up behind a wall or something. So cleared all through that. And then um, I was actually heading for the PEDCAC, and you came bebopping up the street like a streak of lightning. And That's how I you, I know, man. I got you. I had your six, man. I think it was me, you, and might have been PAC. Um, went up and checked the PEDCAC, uh, made sure they were all good. And those guys came through it okay. Yeah. That was, uh, I think, a, I don't know if Ski was there or not, but I, that's whenever I had someone, um, well, you remember the, 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 the smoke was, was at, from the abandoned hotel, and we all thought that, well, if they hit their, the Asaish, which were usually protecting that hotel, and got the high ground, we're all screwed. Yeah. So right on that moment when you and I uh, went up to the PEDCAC, I, there was one there was a couple guys on the roof looking over on the street and i was like get them the fuck down because that's not even a that wasn't even a position for us and we didn't know what was going on but we had we had him pull up a suburban and uh near the pedcac to use the armor of the suburban and obviously the engine block of the suburban for some cover in case uh there was a breach in the wall uh just because it was so new like i said like you said it was within five minutes I ran across from the gym, got kitted up, uh, and then I went straight to uh, to well, see you guys it. there. Yeah. Then I checked on ERT on my way down to get a better view on the opposite side of the compound. But um, Anyway, we, go ahead. So we we finished it. We wrapped up the bedcack, and we started pushing down. We were going to um, – by then, some of the ERT guys, uh, we did kind of a 
formed up a hasty team. And this is like in the very beginning of this interview where I talked about that repetitive training. I love training, you know, and sometimes it gets old, but it will eventually you'll get your reward from it. And the one thing that we got was we cleared those buildings at like ludicrous speed. We were running through um, and it, and it didn't even matter that it was personnel from different teams linking up. Everybody was on the same page. Uh, we were breaching the, breaching the buildings, going through. It was like water. It, it was nice. It was fun to watch. And then lo and behold, we're breaching the thing and I can't get through the door. And Tony Beltran's on my six. You know, he's got the, the codes and all, you know, which is a reflection of what kind of guy he is. You know, he he could easily post it up and, you know, I'm the, I'm the program manager. I don't have to do this. But that's that's not his style, you know. Nah, he always went in on the action. Yeah, he he was always moving, and um, you know, so it was cool. Turn around and and there's a program manager right on your six, you know, and you're moving through these buildings, cleared everything, and then things started to slow down a little bit. We started to pick up the combo and deploy people out and set up points. I do remember. Um, I don't know if you caught this on the radio because I saw it on TV the other day and I, um, or not the other day, but later that day, um, nitro, um, for people that don't know nitro, uh, one of the nicest guys you will ever meet in your life. You know, Soft spoken. Yeah. Yep. He's like, Hey man, you know, what are you doing? Hey Matt, can you download that song for me? He's that kind of guy. One of the deadliest people I've ever met, you know? The dude could shoot the balls off a tack, uh, off a freaking fly, you know. Um, but he's posted up, what was it, the uh, the Hungarian house? Is that what we called it, the Hungarian house? I can't remember. Uh, Romanian? Romanian. Romanian, I don't know. Anyway, he's posted up there um, as a sniper position, um, doing some overwatch while we're maneuvering to where we have to maneuver. And I hear Nitro comes over the radio and he's like, I have three military age males on this rooftop and they're videoing this incident. And he asked for a green light to put these guys down. And the RSO was like, no, no, don't do that. Well, the funny part of that story is, you know, the next day I'm watching the news and I can see what would have been the angle to because there, you can see some live video of what had happened. You know, the the uh, fire and all was still going on. And I was like, man, that was news, guys. I was like, those guys have no idea that they were in the crosshairs of that guy, you know, who asked a simple question of, can I kill these guys? And if it hadn't been for, you know, just a little bit of restraint, <laughs> This guy's trying to do nothing more than get the story uh, would have been laying down. Yeah, it was confusing outside the walls, man. Um, I went out a little later to escort the FBI guy out to do a little protection detail for him. Um, but every swinging dick that, that that you know that the consulate was, um, you know, an acquaintance to, or, you know, any of our contacts and for, they're all out there and a bunch of them have guns. And so you have the highest level generals and colonels out there. And then you got the lowest level guys that are just off duty because the Zervani camp was nearby. 
mm-hmm. right? So they all kind of came out after the fact and were just roaming around and like picking up pieces of the car and trying to hand it to me. And I'm like, what, what am I going to do with this? It's a rubber hose, you know? Um, but they meant well. They were trying to do the right thing, but it was complete chaos on the outside because I, I thought we did well on the inside. It wasn't so much chaos for her, for, for us. We, it sounded like chaos on the outside, but we, we got up to our positions. You know, we had comms issues, which is very common in any type of high profile, high threat, intense, you know, yeah. uh, issue when people are trying to communicate and get, uh, get what, get what we want to get said across the net. And, um, yeah, so I could see him looking at that and saying something doesn't feel right. There's all these guys with guns approaching the consulate. Yeah, because when he was um, in the Corps, if you saw military-age males videoing something that just happened, they were probably bad guys. You know? For sure, yeah. <laughs> it took me a, a little bit. I finally I wound up because uh, we had set up another sub a little bit farther down from the pedcac to keep an eye on the uh, hotel so they wouldn't get the high ground. I can't remember who the kid was. He was one of the newer guys, but he was, he had a, he had a saw. So we had a belt fed weapon pointed at it. So I think we'd have been able to button it up quick unless it was a lot of folks, but um, I finally was able to get a phone call, a cell phone call out to my wife. And, you know, I was like, Hey, I'm, I'm good. Everything's still working. I'm, I can't talk. I'll call you back, but I love you. Um, everybody's safe. You know, I, I felt like the biggest freaking douche canoe um, for leaving her hanging like that. And, um, but it made for a great story. And um, one of the, uh, oh, this is one thing I got to tell you about Tony Beltran. Um, when I first got to Erbil, like I said, I was in a talk, right? And uh, I had been on station maybe four days, five days, something like that. My sister had a stroke. And I called him like I normally do. My wife told me it was up. I was like, well, what's up? And they were like, well, she had a stroke. We're just trying to figure out what's going on. Um, she's in a coma. And I called Tony, and it was probably know, quarter to 11 at night. And I said, hey, man, this is what's happening. And he's like, well, do you need me to send you home? And I was I was getting ready to go home in a couple of days anyway. I was like, no, you know, I'll hang out and just go home when it's time. There's nothing I can really do. Um, and he's like, you sure? I said, yeah, man, it's, uh, right now. Let's do that right now. He's like, okay. He hangs up the phone, calls me back like 20 minutes later. He's like, I'm sending somebody to relieve you. You need to go pack your shit. You're leaving tonight. He had went ahead and bought me a ticket. And, um, sent somebody over to relieve me. I had like 20 minutes to pack my stuff. Um, I actually, I packed so fast. I rolled through, um, the Rubio airport with a nine mil magazine in my luggage. Mm, sure. You like that. Oh yeah. yeah. That, that went well. But, um, he was like, no dude, it's your family. Just, you, you got to get home. I said, okay, you know, fly home. Wife picks me up at the airport. I've been up all night. Um, and Ron was like, well, what do you want to do? I said, babe, let me, let's just go home. Let me just get a quick nap and we'll run out of the hospital, see my sister. And she's like, well, we're on the highway. Let's just go up and see her. Um, I said, okay. Uh, drive up to university. Um, get to university. I'm there. 
10 minutes, my sister comes out of a coma, completely lucid, you know, excited that I'm home. We had this great conversation for like an hour. Uh, she slipped back into a coma. Uh, a couple days later, she died. Oh, wow. You know? And I, I was, you know, I always appreciated the fact, you know, again, you know, you don't get to have bosses like Tony that much. I, I hate to sound like I'm kissing his ass because he can't do shit for me now. But, um, but like, I, he's always thinking forward, you know, and I always appreciated that time, you know, because I'd have never got it. I'd have never had it back. And that, that moment would have been gone, you know. So I, I thought that was great. And, um, you know, you, you'll never hear me say a bad thing about the man because he's he's definitely got his shit together. And I always appreciated that. But, you know, um, getting back to that day, um, I think – you know, we changed up the training profile when you came on board. There was a lot, you, you kind of touched on it a little bit. There was a lot of frustration um, from the training side. You know, everybody was screaming, we need to have a little bit better planning. We need to have this stuff set. You know, this isn't something that you should just half-ass and kind of try and figure it out on the fly. Cause when things go South, that's not the time to kind of figure it out. And we had this, um, it was like every Saturday or whatever at 1300, the duck and cover alarm would go off, you know, and it got to the point where, you know, uh, Saturday shit. All right, let's eat lunch. Let's get our shit on. Cause the alarm's going to go off. And it was that kind of mentality. And, and it got so it got to the point where people, didn't take it serious. Uh, you know, the duck and cover alarm would go off on a training. You would see, uh, um, service officers, like not even come out of their hooches. You know, it, it was just blah. And, um, when you guys got on board and you kind of change that profile a little bit and we started pre-planning things that paid dividends on that day. It really did. Yeah. We built more of a team. I mean, I, I, I came there for a reason. I didn't know Pac was there. Uh, good with Pac. Uh, good friends with him. I worked with him a lot in Baghdad. And I knew Derek Canales as well. Uh, not much, but I knew him a little bit. And uh, my objective when I got there, and, and the deputy's objective was like, hey, you're going to work protective ops, but I want you to help out on compound defense and all these different things. And um, so I did. And the first thing was, well, who are the guys that are going to protect the compound? It's the contractors because there's more of you and all very skilled and capable. And so I had meetings with Tony. I don't know if you remember, I had I had mm-hmm. several meetings where I said, ask me questions. I want to, I want to have meetings where you ask tough questions and I'll give you the answers that I can. I even held meetings where I'd say, I, I want to know what we can fix, how we can do it better. I want to know if we, if the bosses, like the, the shift leaders or whatever says, we can't do something that I want to know why, you know, and and uh, and we did. We implemented a lot of things that the the security contractors, you know, uh, tossed out there. I mean, we're not our as RSOs. We're we're not the end all be all of security. We don't know everything. We certainly don't know all the gaps. Whenever you know, co- compared to the people that you know work the compound, like you had some of your guys that were managing the local guard force, and I know as a former Marine Guard, 
that when you stand pose for eight hours, 12 hours at a time, you learn a lot of shit and you learn a lot, a lot of the nuances to the job and, you know, um, where your, 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 your vulnerabilities might be. And, um, so anyway, we, I think just by opening up saying, ask me questions, let's talk, let's, uh, build kind of a bit more of a camaraderie that went a long way with, uh, with, uh, well, with you guys, with the certi- with the contractors. Yeah. yeah. I was impressed with the, <clears throat> the, the RSU team that came in with you guys had a little bit more humility than the ones you replaced, you know, and, and, and humility being is you weren't afraid to say, Hey man, we don't know. We don't know this part, fill in these blanks for us. You know, you weren't afraid to, to, you know, get the tough question and not know the answer to it and realize, well, this is a weakness that we have. Let's find a, let's find an answer for this so that we don't have to deal with it when we're under stress. Um, and, uh, I thought, I thought you folks did an awesome job at that. It was, it was pretty, pretty good. There, now there was one, one thing I saw and I thought it was pretty funny. Um, I'm sure at the moment the <laughs> the guy who was doing it didn't think it was funny, but I won't, I won't say any names cause it was kind of embarrassing, but, uh, one of the, when everything started to happen and everybody's moving, everybody's finding a place to fight from and linking up with their teams and executing what they had planned. Um, Wolf, you remember Wolf, your stunt double. Yeah. He comes running up and there was, um, one of the guys was crouched down behind a suburban as far as you could crouch down into that space trying to get his magazine into his Glock. And it, it dude, it was like a, a, a prom date trying to get to third base, him trying to get that thing in there. And you could just tell that he was nervous. And uh, uh, Wolf ran by. <laughs> Wolf runs by him and he's like, you're right, sir. I mean, he was so creeped out that he actually thought that maybe he had gotten hurt <laughs> or something. And he's like, oh, no, no, I'm good. And he goes, okay, man. And he kept on running. And he's telling us this story. And I was like, you should have said, hey, did your courage fall out of your pocket and roll underneath that suburban, sir? What happened? Um, but I, I, I think I think somebody got caught totally off guard. And um, maybe. Yeah, I know. I know exactly who you're talking about. That was uh, <laughs> I went around quick and I had to I had to politely tell everybody, hey, let's just mm. shut it down because we don't want it to get back to him. Uh, he was higher level than me. Yeah, I know. Uh, you know, but but uh, yeah, that was pretty funny, and I, I don't know why any DSA agent or security contractor wouldn't have uh, the magazine in, oh, obviously, obviously, and uh, around the chamber. Um, so that was interesting when I heard the story. I was like, "What the what?" Because I thought he carried every day, but I guess not. Um, yeah, he didn't carry a loaded weapon every day. Yeah, maybe not. I don't know. Um, it seems. It's interesting that I always make it a rule to, in a, in a moment of chaos, never do anything to single yourself out that uh, is going to come off looking negative in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, we call it we call it faking the funk. You know, even if you're, you know, uh, especially in EMS, you know, there's when I uh, when I preset paramedics and and kind of work with newer providers, I'm like. 
you need to be a duck on water. You know, if you ever see a duck on water, when they're on, it looks like they're just kind of cruising around on the top. But if you were able to look underwater at that duck, his little feet are going 3,000 miles a minute. You know, and it's it's okay for your brain to be going 3,000 miles a minute. But you have to be smooth as glass and you need to deliver that confidence, especially the medics, the team medics out of all people. You know, because if you have a solid medic corps, guys that you know will run through a hail gunfire for you, there's nothing that you won't try and do. You know, you can empower your your folks to to do things they would have never thought they could do and to push in and do more damage than they ever thought they could do because they know that you're there and they know that you're going to be there and they're going to bring you back. You know, they're not going to leave you out there. Um, and, and I think we had that relationship with the rest of the shooters on the consulate. You know, um, we were the ones that set up the casualty collection points and came up with that planning. Someone else took the credit for it obviously, you know, and it is what it is, you know, you know, again, you're, you're not there to get the credit. You're there to make sure the mission gets completed. You know, if somebody has a need to make themselves feel, you know, awesome, more power to you, just stay out of the way when things start happening kind of thing. But, um, yeah, I'm with you, man. Aside from the combo piece, which it is what it is. And we still got the communications out that we needed to get out. Uh, I don't think it could have went any better in, in yeah. the mobile, and in the environment that it was set up with. Um, but, uh, you know, being on the CG's team, uh, one, he was a Maryland guy. He's a, he's a UMBC grad. Uh, I wanted, and nobody would ever give this idea up to you. Um, the CG graduated from University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Their mascot is the retriever. I was like, how come the CG don't have a call sign? The ambassador does. I said, I, I tell you right now, if you go up to the CG and say, hey, sir, we're going to make you a call sign. You okay with retriever? He'd have jumped all over it. He'd have made his day. Nobody would ever, couldn't get anybody to buy it. I think it would have made him feel good because he was a cool guy. Yeah, no, he was great. He's uh, he's still with the State Department. Good, just a good dude. I liked him a lot. Um, and he was well-liked with the Iraqis as well. Um, security office, we got along with him great. He was security conscious. He can't ask for more. You know. And he was a runner. He was a runner. Yeah, he ran around the compound, did his thing. Didn't ask us to go uh, run the town, thank goodness. Um, that would have been a hard no. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, no, he was very sensible. No, really, really nice guy. I, I like him. I'm in touch with him on LinkedIn. I think in Facebook, too. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's always so good to have a principal that's in good shape and can run fast. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, so your bill was your last assignment, right? With TC. It was, it was, um, I did something to my neck. I didn't think it was that bad. And then when I got home, once they started looking at it, I wound up having to get, uh, C three and four fused. Um, which kind of put a damper on everything. And the, you know, my wife, God love her, you know, I don't, you know, I don't think spouses get enough credit at all for, for what they do, you know, um, on, 
we've been together, we've been married now for 15 years. You've been together for 18, but on our 12th wedding anniversary, I was deployed for half our marriage, you know, and, um, the, the phone call that she had on the day that the consulate got attacked, unfortunately, that wasn't the first phone call like that, that she had been privy to, you know, during the medevac days, you know, the, um, the DSN phone used to be the, in 05, you know, the, uh, I had a sat phone that cost like $300 million an hour or a minute to, to call so that I would just keep it in case of emergencies. Um, mostly for, uh, you know, E and E kind of thing mostly, but, um, the DSN phone was right there by ops. So, you know, when I was on second up or first up, Unfortunately, she would hear, you know, the ops guys, hey, doc, we got one. You know, you got two urgent surgicals. They just got hit with an IED. It's a point of injury, you know. So she knows as soon as I hang up that phone, I'm going to get in a helicopter and I'm going to fly out to where these people just got hit and pick these folks up, you know. Um, so, yeah, I I don't know what I would have done without her. She's awesome. I mean, she moved into two houses. She actually closed on this one and moved into it when I was – in her beal. She's a badass. I always appreciated her, <clears throat> but her beal was the end of it. Um, but, uh, that was the, like I said, that's what I always pictured being a security contractor. You know, the, the, um, secretary of state, you know, being on his protection detail, um, uh, general Oderno, when he came in, um, he was the guy who signed my BSM, you know, when I was in, uh, uh, Q West, he was our, uh, CG then, you know, and I mentioned it to him. And when I gave him the background on the mission, he, he recalled it. Um, and, and I thought, you know, it wasn't even lip service, you know, cause when I had mentioned it, the Samara bridge and the sniper, he's like, is that the, was a child, wasn't it? I said, yes, sir. You know, so it's a couple years downrange and he still recalled it. And I'm yeah. sure this is something that, you know, how many of those go past his desk every day, you know? Um, so I thought he was a pretty cool dude. John McCain, um, you know, I got to, uh, how many guys can say they were John McCain's team medic, you know, or, uh, the, it was one, congressman who made a comment about my wife being hot <laughs> uh was that isa yeah that's him yeah you knew it was him i didn't even have to tell you his name yeah we were getting pictures at the uh the vip airport i just uh i don't know him. i don't know him i just know his personality based on mm-hmm. being around him uh for limited interactions uh with the team because he came in when i was there as well yeah. I mean, he wasn't being disrespectful. It was, you know, it was, uh, he was, you know, kidding around basically saying I got a pretty wife. But, but, I mean, he's, uh, he's a nice enough guy. He was, uh, like to drop F bombs left and right, tried to uh, fit in, I guess. But the one thing I noticed about John McCain though, when, um, secretary Kerry, uh, a lot of people don't, the people that don't know is there's, there's three different terminals at the Erbil airport. You have the regular terminal where all us meet and taters guys and gals come in. Then you have the, uh, the VIP terminal. And then next to that, you have the VVIP terminal. And I I thought it was very telling 
that all the diplomat or, or, or all the, the big names, you know, generals, congressmen, senators, secretary of whatever that came through, came through the VIP terminal. The only one that ever came through the VVIP terminal was Senator McCain. The Kurdish people love that guy. Yeah. And uh, I got got my picture with him. Got it framed. I mean, that's a cool one. He was good. He was good to deal with. I dealt with him a little bit in Baghdad. I think we ran an advance for him, and it's him, Lieberman, and maybe Graham. I forget the the crew, but um, the three of them that always kind of stuck together. But in Erbil, uh, we started planning for him to come. He never made it when I was there. And dealing with his staff is, as I've mentioned this in another episode, dealing with his staff was the issue because they just, well, one, they were pushy. They, you know, thought they were big shit and um, kind of to the point of being disrespectful and were non-responsive whenever with items that we needed to know. And not just for the security side of the house, from the, you know, the foreign service officers as well. We're trying to set up a schedule and, you know, there's a lot of, nuance and minutiae that goes into these visits not again not just on security side but you know scheduling in 15 minutes for this 10 minutes for that and everything is lined out to a t you know and and um you need that information but dealing with his staff was was the worst thing but he as a person uh i only got to shake his hands once and um and it wasn't like we had a conversation it was part of the you know, we're all standing around. And, uh, but from my understanding, the guys that did work closely with him or did protect him, the AICs and shift leaders were, uh, were pretty pleased with that. He was a good guy. He's a nice guy. So. Yeah. I like Senator McCain. He's a really cool dude. I didn't realize he was so small. He's a little guy. Yeah. And, um, the, the other, we always, the medic side, the only thing we always wanted and we hardly ever got was, you know, we always wanted, uh, Give me their med history. Give me their allergies. You know, are, are you sending a senator here that's got a peanut allergy? You know, so we can be prepared. And we just would never get that that information. I don't know if they were afraid it was going to get leaked or, or whatever the reason. Yeah. But. Well, cool, man. So tell us a little bit about what you're doing these days. What you got going on? Uh, I'm working. I, I got two lines of two lines going out. I'm a career paramedic again in uh, Caroline County, Maryland, um, which I love, you know, medicine is always going to be that, that one thing that I just will always come back to, (coughs) excuse me. And uh, the other thing we got going on is um, you remember Jerry Towns? Yeah. No, Jerry. Um, You know, when I was getting ready to wrap up, he, uh, him and shadow, I don't know if you remember shadow from Baghdad, uh, I'd have to see his face. I think he was an, I think he was an APD guy. Um, he was an ex uh, special ops guy, super smart. Um, him and Jerry and Shadow had started a security company doing EP work in um, Fayetteville. And you know, he came to me um, and he said, "Hey, man, you know, we're we're trying to expand the company and get around the DC metro area because that's you know that's." Uh, there's a lot of things happening up there. You got the congressional pieces and you have a lot of money, a lot of uh, uh, commerce, all that stuff rolls through there and asked me if I'd be interested in standing up an office there, you know, and 
Jerry Towns' ass, and I, I, I did, you know, because uh, I love that guy, you know. Um, him and his wife Mika, they're they're just awesome, awesome people. Uh, so we kicked off uh, Shadow Protective Services, the Maryland office up here, um, and the coronavirus has kind of put a damper on everything. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's got a lot of potential. We've got, we've had some good clients. We've gotten to do some pretty good missions. Um, I, I guess the, the hardest thing we're having to kind of educate people more so is, um, there's like a, a retired police officer. This is my sandbox kind of thing. Cause for years, if you wanted a personal security guy, you know, the only thing you really had available was a cop or an ex-cop or a retired cop, you know, um, and people don't, you know, which is why when you, when you said, uh, doc, are you interested? Absolutely. I'm interested in doing this podcast, you know, cause it, it helps educate people to have an understanding of what diplomatic security does. You know, with with the exception of your Secret Service guys, there's nobody that does it better than whips. You know, the State Department, the one thing, it's not the one thing, but one of the things they've done right is the whips program. You know, I don't think anybody does executive protection better than we do. Uh, so, yeah, I would agree. And I wouldn't say with the exception of Secret Service. I think they're great domestically. Um, they have a lot of resources. We don't as DS agents and DS agents operate domestically as well, but overseas protection where shit is really on the line. No one does it better than whips. No one does it better than DS. And, uh, you know, and you can take that, you know, that translates to domestic protection. So what you guys are doing, I mean, uh, obviously I'm a big supporter of cops, um, but if you don't have that executive protection background or the dignitary protection background, you know, uh, there's some nuance there that, um, you might not get And to anyone that's knows someone that needs personal security, you know, the whips guys get it, you know, DS guys get it, secret service guys get it too. Um, but, uh, you know, we don't hold DS doesn't hold the big stick. Right. So a lot mm-hmm. of what we do domestically, especially domestically, is we politely ask, can we have this? What about this? Can you help us out here? So we learned that, you know, there's a common thing they say in DS is, you know, the the word diplomat comes before security. And, and we, we don't come in and say we need this because we're protecting the vice president or the president. We yeah. we have to not negotiate. I mean, most people say yes. Um, but you have to have an interpersonal skill set where you can communicate with people effectively to get what you want. And, uh, you know, and that's, I think that's important when it comes to. Absolutely. You know, and uh, I've got two police officers that we, um, one was a good friend of mine, him and I grew up together. Um, and we ran these guys through a week long um EP course, you know, nothing crazy, no tactical stuff. It was all academics. And then we did some practice missions and put up some motorcades and let them advance some. Uh, it was actually kind of my wife. I really liked it because my wife and I were the principal. You know, it was good for me because I can listen to everything that's going on. I can watch everything that's going on. And um, 
you know, my wife got treated like a queen for the day, you know, which was awesome. You know, we went out to dinner and went out to get drinks or whatever. And the take home was, uh, these two police officers who, um, one of them, he's a warrant guy. He goes all over the country snatching up people that got locked up for warrants. And the other guy, he does a lot of undercover work. I mean, these are these are in the trenches policemen, you know. And at the end of it all, both of them were like, you know, I learned so much in this week that I never even thought of. You know, when I originally, when you originally called me and said, uh, hey, man, you want to come to work? And they thought about it and said, yeah, it sounds like it'd be fun. What they had in their mind was nothing like what I had put out to them and what they had applied in uh, practical exercise. So, you know, one of the, one of the things that it tells me is, you know, it's, it's good to have that, you know, you feel secure when you have a policeman next to you, but the level of training and, the the depth of training is so much better when you've got someone who that's all they do. They're executive protection. They're not, I don't care if you're a shoplifter. I don't care if you're selling dope. I don't care if you're stealing cars. I don't care if you're a murderer. I do not care. My person is the principal in front of me and that is who I'm going to protect. And that is who I'm going to take care of. I'm going to do everything I can to pre-plan it and have contingencies built in and get them there safely and do everything that that person needs to do what they need to do without me kind of being all up in the grill, if that makes sense. You know, um, so it, it's been a lot of fun. You know, I really appreciate the fact that Jerry thought enough of me to, to, to ask me if I'd be willing to do that. Um, and um, I really appreciated all that. Uh, you know, uh, our company info, um, if there's anyone that is looking for, <clears throat> or even if you just have questions um, about what it's about, um, and if you're thinking that you might need executive protection and you want to get some more information and find out the differences, um, you can go to our website which is um, sps500.com, Shatter Protective Services, um, sps500.com. And everything you need is on there. The way to get in touch with myself or Jerry is on there. Um, And like I say, um, if you reach out to me and you're looking for information, I'm not going to phone stalk you. I'm going to answer your question. And if you need additional help, I'll be there to help you. Uh, just like Jerry and Shadow will. Um, so I guess that's my sales pitch of the day. But uh, That works for me. We're right at two hours, so perfect timing. All right. Yeah, man. Well, Doc, uh, it's been great to chat with you, man. Yeah, it's been great to catch up. I, I You know, I, I listened to uh, – the one, uh, the, your episode with Tony, you know, and it, it brought back a lot of feelings and I really miss it. I really miss working with those folks and, and being out there and doing the job. Um, you know, but I, I guess everyone needs to make those transitions in their lives and, and do what's best for their family. And I think, uh, you know, 
Rhonda took enough of them on the chin. You know, it was time for me to be home and, and be a good husband and a good grandfather and a good father. And I think that's what I need to do when I start getting old, you know, and I'm over 50 now, so I got to start slowing down a little bit. Well, you don't look it, my friend. <laughs> and, uh, I know. And I can't even afford Botox. That's a bad thing. Well, cool, man. Well, great in talking to you. Uh, I appreciate you coming on. And uh, I'm going to stop recording on right here, but uh, just sit tight. Thanks, buddy. All right, all right. Matt Miller, Doc, thank you for coming on. For any of you that are interested in learning more about executive protection or engaging Matt and Jerry, Jerry Towns, on their services, uh, SPS500.com is where you can find them. Good freaking dudes. They will talk to you uh, whether you're trying to get into the industry or you need their services or you just have some questions. Uh, these are dudes you want to listen to. They're solid as can be, and they know what they're doing. And I know it because I was with them, and I've seen them. Uh, so check them out, SPS500.com. That is Shadow Protective Services. That is it besides a few housekeeping items. You all know I talk about my book, Agents Unknown, True Stories, of a diplomatic security what's the name of my book true stories of life as a special agent in the diplomatic security service you think i'd know that by now uh it can be found on amazon in paperback in kindle in audible uh, in audio format and uh well pretty soon i'm gonna have it directly off my website where you can get it at a discount and even more of a discount with the uh shipping so it'll be a lot less than amazon i'm working through that also, things you can find on my website, my YouTube videos that I put out for aspiring DS agents, and a couple of other things. Uh, you can find my Instagram right now. It's agentsunknown underscore book. You can find uh, uh, well, the podcast. If you, it seems like you found the podcast if you're listening to it, but uh, if you choose to listen to it somewhere else for whatever reason, go to codyperron.com. If you have questions about the Diplomatic Security Service, you're just interested in learning more, you want to chat, um, I'm not a recruiter for them. But I will talk to you because that's what I do. I like talking to people, and uh, I like spreading the word. It was the greatest job in federal law enforcement, hands down. And uh, I'm a fan of the organization, and I'll continue to be a fan of the organization. Uh, for those of you who follow me on Instagram social media, you will notice that I put out a hoodie. It's a high threat protection. We get you off the X. I thought that was funny. I think I'm funny sometimes. We get you off the X high threat protection hoodie. It's a black hoodie. Uh, if you're interested, ping me info at codyperron.com or just go onto my Instagram and hit me up. It will be on the website in the coming weeks. I took pre-orders today. I can take some more orders. Uh, very informal. Just ping me and I'll put you down for size and then I'll collect your cash a little later. So uh, check that out. Uh, high threat protection hoodie. We get you off the X. No, getting you off the X. Something like that. Just go check it out. It's a good time. I think it's a good hoodie. I got a, a, a great response from it. Um, lastly, if you're interested in becoming a DSS agent, there's a Facebook group. Guess what it's called? Becoming a DSS agent. Hit that group up. There are active DS agents, former DS agents, retired DS agents, which are kind of the same thing, but those guys did their 20 and got out or more. Uh, there's some guys... There's some guys that were on the hiring panel from back in the day. We just let a guy in the group today that it was uh, used to be on the hiring panel. Um, 
And uh, so, you know, there's a lot of knowledge in that group. We don't all have the answer. There's no answer. You got to got to perform if you want to get into DS. That's all there is to it. Um, you got to perform uh, on your on your initial exam, and then when you get in there to meet people face to face, you have to perform. But you know, we all have uh, hints and tips. We've all been there, and uh, you know, we want good people to get in. I want good people to get in. I assume the agents that are there now still want people to get in. So I'm just running my suck right now. I will shut up and get on out of here. But I'll catch y'all next time. Thanks for the support, continued support. So thanks, y'all. Out.